بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جینٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو دا ایپیزوڈ فائیو آف دا پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو پوڈ کاسٹ ود یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد اٹس بین کوائٹ اے ہیکٹک ویک آئی واز اینڈ فیلنگ ویل آئی ہیڈ کاف اینڈ کولڈ اینڈ دس از ون آف دا ریزنز وائی آئی واز ان ایبل ٹو ریکارڈ ایپیزوڈ فائیو ان دا ویک اینڈ وچ پاسٹ and uh, i've received a few direct messages from listeners here and there uh, they were asking me to publish episode 5 before the weekend and uh, so for due consideration i acted accordingly um there are uh, five broad issues which i will be discussing in this episode We begin with the upcoming Shanghai Cooperation Organization Heads of Government meeting in India. Uh, India was uh, is slated to host the 19th Council of Heads of Government of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or SCO in New Delhi. Now as you all know both India and Pakistan were admitted as full members in 2017. Uh, the previous heads of government meeting the 18th meeting was held in Tashkent Uzbekistan in November 2019 not too long ago and it was there that uh, uh, majority of member states uh, encouraged and nominated India to host the upcoming meeting uh, the SCO which has its headquarters in Beijing it holds summits of heads of states as well as government meetings annually in member countries uh, In fact, the SEO Secretary General, who is appointed on rotation from member states, primarily Russia and China, uh, the current Secretary General, Mr. Vladimir Norov, he recently spoke at the Raisina Dialogue 2020, which is uh, underway, or it's, I think it's about to end, in New Delhi, uh, organized jointly by the Ministry of External Affairs and the Observer Research Foundation. Mr. Norov uh, held one-on-one meetings with uh, the Indian External Affairs Minister, Dr. Subramaniam Jayashankar, business leaders and other representatives. Uh, he said that in terms of security, the heads of government noted that sustainable development would be impossible without stability and peace. This means only collective efforts to fight conventional and new challenges against political, economic, social and cultural issues among SCO members. um we in my previous podcast and also in uh, one of my recent publications i highlighted that uh, uh, the thinking within russia's high level circles policy circles is that uh, 2020 represents a growing year for uh, the emerging sino russian uh, axis or if we can group them together the eurasian uh, powers against the collective west and uh, i wouldn't like to exaggerate that uh, this topic again but uh, the platform of shanghai cooperation organization is a practical framework which has been existent since long it is the actual uh, doable process through which uh, russia and china can exercise their regional influence against what they perceive uh, to some extent very rightly is uh, belligerence by extra regional forces particularly the united states of america we saw uh, the recent incident in which uh, 
Quds Force Chief Major General Qasim Soleimani was uh, killed in a targeted assassination in uh, Iraq and uh, which have disrupted the regional strategic st uh, stability paradigm and uh, this is why there is a great the upcoming conference among heads of government in New Delhi is going to assume even greater prominence in retrospect because considering the incident in Iran uh, greater uh, aggressive posturing by the US Central Command and uh, there are some other issues as well, which is uh, <clears throat> the U.S. Indo-Pacific initiative with India, but that is to a very lesser extent. Overall, when we talk about the SCO, it is the only regional forum which uh, takes, uh, which is uh, led by China and to some extent Russia as patrons, and they involve all major Central Asian and South Asian countries. Um, this uh, is also important in the context of uh, Afghanistan and I'll come to that in a bit. Uh, in December 2019, Beijing hosted the conclusive meeting of divisional heads of SCO member state defense ministries. Uh, they were discussing international military cooperation and concurrently they also held the 8th meeting of the experts working group for the meeting of defense ministers of SEO member states. Participants from member countries including Pakistan uh, discussed cooperation between the MODs, the ministries of defense of member states, reviewed collaborative efforts within SEO in 2019 and discussed future prospects. Now Russia offered a draft program for the experts working group for this year 2020. And it's interesting to note I was doing a bit of research and I found out that the ninth meeting of the SCO Council of Defense Ministers expert working group will be held in Pakistan. So this year uh, Pakistan is going to host this uh, important defense ministerial involving SCO member countries and uh, we, I personally do not uh, expect India not to avail of this opportunity. They will definitely show their presence, the Indian Ministry of Defense being led by the very prominent uh, Rajnath Singh. So um, in this context and also the fact that uh, a few months ago uh, the SCO held its uh, exercise for urban search rescue and disaster relief in, um, also in New Delhi and surprisingly uh, a small delegation of NDMA National Disaster Management Authority officials participated in the exercise uh, they intentionally did not publicize it, they didn't acknowledge it. Um, I have no idea why they had such qualms about acknowledging presence uh, in a program which although was organ uh, um, executed in India but it was part of a, a multi-stakeholder process, a regional process uh, patronized by China and Russia. Everyone was there but uh, Pakistan was not there. Uh, and I mean as far as press reports go, Pakistan did participate and earlier even before that in uh, early 2019, uh, mid 2019, there was a cyber uh, crime workshop which was organized in India under the aegis of uh, SCO in which Pakistan uh, did not participate at all. So uh, we are the ones who uh, decide 
that we are better off not being uh, being isolated from our immediate regional neighborhood and this uh, plays to our own detriment uh, i see no point how that sends out signals of uh, uh, maybe we are trying to tell regional countries, especially Central Asian republics, um, who are quite quirky about their South Asian neighbors, uh, their nuclear-armed South Asian neighbors, that we are uh, not interested in uh, attending because of uh, one particular issue. But the fact of the matter is, yes, uh, the issue of Indian-occupied Jammu and Kashmir is very important. It is the one of the key reasons why and legitimate reasons why pakistan is uh, in a diplomatic standoff with india but that does not mean that we isolate ourselves from regional forums which india is not a patron of india is simply a mini member state of the sco just like pakistan in fact our central asian neighbors to the north they are the ones who are long time members and uh, it is actually uh, we who are at a loss when it comes to developing uh, regional ties and uh, promoting interoperability in various spheres whether it is cooperation in the economic political social or even the defense spheres so um, i personally believe the, that uh, according to protocol the for the heads of uh, government meeting uh, invitations will be sent and reportedly it has already been sent to prime minister imran khan and uh, if past trends are a witness to it, then um, accordingly our leadership should ensure their presence in India. Uh, and uh, if India does not accept or tries to stop it, that's another thing. But uh, we have to send the signals properly that uh, we are committed uh, to a region, regional first policy. And uh, we, are, we prioritize our neighborhood instead of uh, countries which are far, far away. And... Uh, we are going to do uh, whatever we can to uh, assure our presence and gain as much uh, regional credibility as possible so that when we talk about Kashmir, then we can uh, maybe get better support from Central Asian republics and other members of the SCO. And definitely we are not in a position right now to snub China. So if we don't participate in this or if a uh, mid-ranking or low-ranking officer from Pakistan and just another ministry official goes to attend uh, it will send wrong messages and this is uh, absolutely something which uh, we cannot afford at the moment or in the future as well uh, we do need uh, consistent patronage by China and Russia so SCO gives us that opportunity to utilize that umbrella properly and it's worth mentioning that uh, uh, last week uh, on the 9th of January the SEO secretariat held a roundtable discussion on Afghanistan through the SEO Afghanistan contact group uh, several prominent think tanks including um, representatives from diplomatic missions were present including from the Pakistan embassy in China and uh, the and during the briefing it was mentioned that terrorist groups with Central Asian and South Asian origins are considered an issue of special concern from member states and obviously we are aware uh, if you do a bit of research that uh, groups such as the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, uh, Daesh although not of Central and South Asian origin but their fringe elements the Khorasan branch etc and other terrorist organizations uh, they have their roots over here we have the uh, Turkestan Islamic party the TIP a terrorist organization which has uh, been um, misusing religion to target uh, Chinese interests 
including trying to sabotage Pak China relations. And these are, uh, and also then there are some groups from the Tatarstan, the Russia side. Uh, IMU is considered a great threat by Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. So um, we, uh, this is uh, this is an avenue in which uh, not just the Afghanistan angle, because uh, Pakistan is already playing lead role in trying to facilitate a peaceful and uh, withdrawal for American forces from Afghanistan through a negotiated settlement with the Taliban but also the fact that Pakistan has considerable expertise in counter-terrorism owing to its successes uh, through various operations over the past two decades and uh, in this context uh, when it comes to counter-terrorism we do not want uh, a specific uh, neighbor country to exploit the vacuum and try to exert pressure on Pakistan by trying to uh, focus exclusively on what they consider are groups which not only uh, execute terrorism in India but also other countries in the region. Uh, we don't want that to happen and we certainly do not want any one particular country trying to control the narrative. This is what Pakistan has been complaining about for a while. So it's not just the optics. Uh, it, that was the SEO contact group on Afghanistan on an overall whatever SEO forum, whatever SEO moot, whatever SEO meeting takes place, we have to ensure that we give the adequate representation, the highest level of representation according to protocol that we can and also that we publicize it, we acknowledge it. We have the, these, this word, these words, Shanghai Cooperation Organization are really mentioned in the mainstream press and this is what we need to do. We have to calibrate ourselves accordingly and uh, it's very interesting that uh, if you follow official press releases by the SEO secretariat, there are some important statements that are made which I don't believe any analyst over here, especially in Pakistan, has uh, actually uh, examined carefully. If you read between the lines, uh, once a statement on the recent SEO contact group on Afghanistan meeting, the Secretary General Vladimir Norov he said that Afghanistan should be involved in the formation of regional transport routes for stabilization through expansion of air, automobile and railway freight shipments in line with, I quote, greater Eurasian partnership, Belt and Road Initiative and national strategies of member states, unquote. So if do you see where this is going? They're talking that they're saying that Afghanistan is not just a threat, it's an opportunity to establish it as a hub for air, automobile and railway connectivity through the integration of Eurasian partnership. Now if you are aware of what the Eurasian project is, it's basically Russia's Eurasian Economic Union, the EEU, an ambitious geoeconomic project which is considered a Russian version of the Belt and Road Initiative. And though uh, China's BRI is more focused on infrastructure and investment in transports um, in member states. So uh, it's basically Russia and China, the integration of Russian and Chinese transcontinental geoeconomic projects, including national strategies of member states. This is a clear win-win for all. And if the SCO thinks that Afghanistan is the neutral platform where all these projects could be linked together, this is something which needs to be studied further. Uh, Mr. Norov highlighted that uh, the Heratan to uh, Mazar-e-Sharif railway 
and currently designed railways from Mazar-e-Sharif to Herat and Mazar-e-Sharif to Peshawar could provide new trans-regional corridors with direct access of Eurasian nations to seaports in India, Iran and Pakistan. Again, now if you read between the lines, uh, there uh, the SCO in the larger context, and this is obviously discrete Russian and Chinese uh, leadership approval from the highest corridors, who are talking through Norov, uh, they want Afghanistan as the hub which will connect India, Iran and Pakistan as also definitely Afghanistan. And uh, this is something that they've hyphenated India and Pakistan alongside Iran and Afghanistan. Now just imagine that uh, if such a thing materializes, there is no harm in being idealistic at times then the outcomes of this for the entire region the peace prospects economic prospects are tremendous and just imagine if such a massive regional undertaking is carried out and it materializes it is significantly going to alter uh, the on uh, the current dynamics of the region so in this larger framework uh, when we just look at the upcoming uh, heads of government meeting in India, it may be just one meeting, it may be just another routine uh, discussion forum, but optics as also uh, proper signaling to uh, political leaders in uh, member countries is important and no one else can do it better than your country's highest official. Obviously, it depends that if... Uh, executives from other member countries are sending some mid-ranking officials then obviously we don't we have to work along similar lines we don't need to be over ambitious but we have to ensure that if there are high level there is high level representation from all others uh, we should not be the odd one out we simply can't afford that and this is an excellent opportunity for pakistan to uh, present uh, to complement the seo's vision for regional connectivity in the south, uh, in the broader Asia's southern region, not just South Asia, but obviously also Western Central Asia. Coming to this other important news, uh, it's quite interesting to note that uh, countries belonging to two distinct camps or um, directly contradicting camps met with uh, Sri Lanka's leadership in back-to-back -back meetings. We have one camp which believes in the Indo-Pacific strategy or the freedom of uh, um, freedom of the Indo-Pacific st strategy, which is um, which are the U.S. and Japan. They held meetings with uh, Sri Lanka's leadership, and on the other side, we has we had Chinese and Russian leaders meeting with their Sri Lankan counterparts. So. Uh, these two camps, U.S. and Japan on one side, and Russia and China on the other, they are. It's quite interesting that within a margin of a day or, or just about a day, 24 hours, all these four countries had sent their prominent officials to Sri Lanka to try to um, lobby the, um, the Sri Lankan leadership support and bid for enhanced partnerships and try to improve uh, bilateral confidence as or not just in the mutual sense but also uh, for the pursuit of uh, common regional objectives that obviously depends on what Sri Lanka considers its national priorities. Uh, so we begin with the, the US 
uh, an American delegation uh, called on the pre President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and now his uh, brother, the Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa. Delegates included uh, U.S. Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, Alice Wells. We all know uh, how vocal she has been against CPEC. Uh, Deputy Assistant to President Trump and Senior Director at the National Security Council for South and Central Asia, Lisa Curtis. Uh, she is uh, not known to be a fan of Pakistan. And U.S. Ambassador to Colombo, Al Aliana V. Teplitz. A host of issues were discussed, including the review of approving Millennium Challenge Cooperation Agreement. Um, I wouldn't like to go into the details. It's not really related to the point I'm trying to make in this specific segment. But just to let you know, I have included it for a reason. The MCC, the Millennium Challenge Cooperation, is a bilateral U.S. foreign aid agency established by the Congress. It is uh, separate from the USAID or the Agency for International Development which works uh, under the State Department. Um, MCC awards grants to countries based on uh, select performance indicators uh, such as civil rights and girls education etc. And uh, in its first year of functioning when it was established in 2004, 17 countries were made eligible for MCC grants including Sri Lanka. So uh, after a while we saw successive leadership changes and that was also in 2004 it was the, uh, the Rajapaksas at that time also um, and uh, now this comes after uh, 16 years but uh, the Sri Lankan leadership has been careful they have actually formed a committee to review on how and whether or not the MCC agreement is going to be approved for implementation in Sri Lanka because uh, US has been quite uh, so the Sri Lankan leadership sorry has been quite skeptical of uh, America especially when um, uh, the US the UK uh, because of persistent Indian lobbying they had tried to uh, malign and slander against uh, the Rajapaksas and accuse them of war crimes against uh, Tamils uh, allegedly uh, trying to commit genocide against uh, Tamils when they were carrying out uh, counter-terrorism operations against the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, the LTTE. So they have their own grudges, they faced a lot of international humiliation and now is the time for the Rajapaksas to rega regain their lost glory and they're not going to be oozed up by American approaches right then and right uh, so easily. It will take a lot of convincing to do. So the uh, report in Colombo page, it mentions that uh, apart from the MCC agreement, Alice Wells discussed issues revolving around uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy. And um, it's interesting that she directly expressed concerns on Chinese investments in Hambantota port, uh, labeling it an, I quote, injustice, unquote, against the Sri Lankan people. And also she met Foreign Minister Dinesh Gunavardhan and members of the opposition in Tamil National Alliance. Obviously the optics to try to assure India that we are not just cozying up to Sri Lanka but we are also mindful of India's sensitivities when it comes to the Tamil ethnic minorities in Sri Lanka. So Hamantota port, yes this is the same port when uh, a few months prior to being elected President uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa uh, in an interview he had mentioned that uh, since long, India's National Security Advisor Ajit Doval um, had red flagged Hamantota uh, as being a big no-no for India's regional maritime interests. And this is, has just been echoed by Alice Wells directly. She has been getting quite uh, unequivocally vocal on, 
criticism of Chinese uh, perceived expansionism in the region, what they consider to be hegemonic. Uh, it's uh, a common uh, Indo-US perception and they believe that Hamban uh, Tota would be used for strategic uh, maritime watch and um, as a pivot to keep tabs on uh, American and US uh, naval activities in the region. Whereas China has repeatedly emphasized that uh, their intent is purely of a geo-economic salience. And uh, similarly, uh, Japan's State Minister for Regional Revitalization, Kozo Yamamoto, met uh, President Gotabaya and expressed keen interest in investing in several sectors including high-tech assembly plants. Now, Gotabaya, President Gotabaya, he had uh, specifically asked the Japanese to set up a high-tech assembly plants because the Japanese are known are well-renowned internationally for China, well obviously has uh, a lot of expertise in industrial manufacturing but when it comes to quality manufacturing and uh, state-of-the-art uh, product, products then uh, Japan is the number one country in the world especially when it comes to uh, electronics etc. So um, Japan, the Japanese minister, the visiting minister, he assured uh, the Sri Lankan president about uh, extending full support for investment in this sector and uh, other avenues in which uh, Japan could um, provide assistance to e expertise to their Sri Lankan counterparts. And then we have uh, China State Councillor and Foreign Minister Mr. Wang Yi who met with the uh, Sri Lankan president and PM both the Rajapaksa brothers. Uh, both the Chinese and Sri Lankan sides agreed to further promote development of the Belt and Road Initiative as well as shipping and logistics sectors. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa assured that his government will fully support the Hamman Tota port project and Colombo port city project. Now Wang Yi met the Rajapaksas after their earlier meeting with Alice Wells. Now if Mahinda Rajapaksa, the Prime Minister and uh, the Supremo among the Rajapaksa brothers, uh, if he has assured, uh, clearly assured the Chinese about support for Hamman Tota, it means that India and the US are going to be severely disappointed. It's uh, good news for Pakistan in, uh, also because um, uh, apart from Djibouti, uh, a Chinese presence in uh, Sri Lanka is going to be an effective uh, assurance against uh, India's ambitions to pro establish, project itself as a regional maritime power and uh, since Hamman Tota area is a native area for the Rajapaksas they are fully supportive of Hamman Tota port project and also the other port project known as the Colombo port city project. Uh, Foreign Minister Yi of China promised that his country would encourage more Chinese enterprises to invest in Sri Lanka and make it economically strong. So his emphasis has been on uh, strengthening the Rajapaksa regime and obviously this is um, an initiative which would increase its credibility for the Sri Lankan voters and uh, garner support against uh, efforts by uh, China's adversaries to discredit and try to present uh, these port projects as some sort of a securitization or um, militaristic uh, initiative which would uh, throw Sri Lanka into a regional abyss of conflict etc and that is a perception which is increasingly growing because of information warfare against uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. So this, these are welcoming signs and finally in this particular segment 
Russia's foreign minister, the indomitable Sergei Lavrov, he led a 42-member delegation to Sri Lanka and he held meetings with his counterpart Dinesh Gunavardhane, Foreign Secretary Ravinatha Arya Singh, State Minister of International Cooperation Susil Prema Jayantha and Defence Secretary Major General Retired Kamal Gunaratne. Uh, Lavrov vowed that Russia will provide arms and ammunition to the Sri Lankan army and discussed avenues for collaboration in other sectors such as politics, trade, science and technology. And Lavrov assured that Russia will support investment in hydrocarbon exploration and tourism. And before he left, Lavrov invited President Gotabaya to visit Russia. So, although Russia, uh, Russia in, uh, is in, interested in holistic uh, involvement increased holistic involvement uh, in Sri Lankan affairs but their particular emphasis has been on providing arms and ammunition to the Sri Lanka. I mean this is what um, the Sri Lankan uh, leadership urgently and direly needs uh, when um, in the previous rule of the Rajapaksas when um, the current president Gotabaya he was the defense minister he was known to be a very uh, no-nonsense guy and uh, he relied extensively on arms from Russia and uh, some consignments from Pakistan to fight the Tamil Tigers and he still remembers that and Russia has been persistently catering for their needs and this is where uh, in the pretext of so-called human rights violations etc etc the US and uh, other countries including India because of their Tamil issues also they have been uh, hesitant to prove to cater for the needs of uh, Sri Lanka's uh, defense consumers, the armed forces. So the Sri Lanka army needs these uh, arms and ammunition and uh, Russia has already extended itself uh, clearly to... And this is quite uh, interesting because uh, we don't really see a lot of Russian engagement with Sri Lanka apart from the routine defense and military uh, angle. And now that uh, the foreign minister was here and uh, a variety of other non-military and non-defense issues were discussed, uh, this is clearly, this is most clearly uh, an effort by Russia to try to find some sort of an ally or like-minded partner in the uh, Indian Ocean. And Sri Lanka is a, located at a very, uh, right at the center of the Indian Ocean, um, just uh, below India and uh, it sits just between the western indian ocean and the in, uh, eastern indian ocean it is a strategic hotspot and it could provide a fantastic chokehold for any country which wishes to keep uh, tabs on uh, hegemonic naval movements in the region so uh, apart from china russia has entered in the mix and these back-to-back -back meetings prove that uh, Sri Lanka is going to be a key country to watch out for in the coming decade and two and um, not just for China's interests but also Russia's and um, this is a country where Pakistan has uh, goofed up significantly we had this uh, tumultuous uh, um, back and forth uh, dilly dallying regarding the appointment of an appropriate high commissioner to Sri Lanka. I've just recently read the news that uh, Major General retired Saad Khatak has finally taken charge as the high commissioner. Well, uh, we have always had a military veteran because of various reasons. We have a long military history associated with uh, Sri Lanka, giving training to them and vice versa. But anyways, um, 
uh, we have lost a lot, a lot of precious time. And uh, one of the ways through which I, I would have um, suggested, I mean, uh, obviously, my suggestions don't hold, might not hold any merit and might not carry any weight. But I would have suggested that in the um, increasing conte context of uh, um, the security calculus shifting from land to sea to the, and the maritime domain is in, assuming increased importance, we would have ideally preferred, uh, even if we wanted to retain a military veteran as an ambassador in Sri Lanka, it would have been better if we had appointed a naval officer, perhaps a rear admiral or a vice admiral retired, uh, so that uh, we could strengthen our alliance with China and uh, our joint dealing with Sri Lanka uh, to secure the larger interests of uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And obviously, if we have a maritime thinker in Sri Lanka who could complement China's efforts to invest in Hamban Tota, and we could assure that along with its further links to the uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor passing through Gawadar, it could establish a, a fruitous buffer in the Western Indian Ocean. And if you can, uh, if I zoom out a bit further, if you can try to see what I'm getting at, if we start with these little efforts, then we could have, uh, and um, we could then have an arc of influence from the uh, Sri Lankan port uh, to East Africa and then uh, Northeast to Gawadar. So th this would have been good, but uh, then again, uh, we are not known to take decisions uh, from the future horizon, uh, long-term horizon perspective. And uh, I don't really expect much to develop except from the routine customary protocols and talks and honor uh, ceremonial meetings, etc., etc. Uh, we should really take advantage of China's presence in uh, and in growing investments in Sri Lanka and uh, we need to capitalize on that and exploit it to our advantage. Coming to the next segment, uh, we recently read the unfortunate news that uh, Sultan Qaboos bin Said Al Said, he passed away on the 10th of January. He was the Sultan of Oman from July 1970. So this is uh, well over uh, 60 years, um, sorry, um, 50 years. So he had been in power for 50 years. Uh, he was the longest serving leader in the Middle East and Arab world in particular. He had no heir. He uh, uh, named his cousin Hatham bin Tariq al Said as his successor. Sultan Qaboos, um, for students of uh, the Middle East, if you've read, um, been been following the developments. O Oman is known as um, um, and to a lesser extent Qatar, but mostly Oman. Oman is known to be a very very neutral country when it comes to geopolitics. Uh, it is a part of the Gulf Cooperation Council. It is a member of the Organization of Islamic Countries. Um, it is a member of the Arab League. But Oman has maintained excellent relations not only with uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE. And Egypt which are some of the more uh, reflexive and aggressive members of the GCC but Oman has also good economic and defense relations with 
uh, Iran and Qatar. Now, Qatar has been an outcast from the GCC because of uh, growing thaws over uh, alleged Qatari support for terrorism against Arab countries, the so-called support from Muslim Brotherhood, which uh, isn't properly established. But anyways, um, the, it's not that I'm negating that altogether, but the fact of the matter is that uh, when it comes to staying uh, neutral in the truest sense of the word, then Oman has been has done beyond that and also Oman was the only country which supported Egypt when the latter recognized Israel and uh, Oman has been uh, during Sultan Qaboos's rule Oman has been consistently inviting Israeli leaders uh, starting with Shimon Peres, Yitzhak Rabin and Benjamin Netanyahu and it also maintains ties in parallel with the Palestinian Authority and one is known to have a very because of its uh, prevailing sect the Ibadi sect and also its uh, unique geostrategic location um, uh, face just opening at the mouth of the Western Indian Ocean in the Arabian Sea um, it is also known to be when we talk in the Pakistani context um, it houses a significant uh, diaspora of a Baloch, ethnic Baloch people and uh, not to go into too many details but uh, Gawadar was purchased in the 50s by Pakistan from Oman it was a part of Oman so um, a large number of Baloch people they emigrated to Oman and uh, even there are a, a handful of uh, Baloch ethnic uh, ministers in the Omani cabinet as well and uh, Pakistan has so far not uh, properly uh, used that uh, Baloch diaspora for their advantage uh, because of uh, myopic policies and uh, short uh, narrow uh, thinking uh, whereas uh, our neighbor India has enjoys uh, very warm relations with Oman uh, Oman is perhaps the only country in the Middle East where India has or perhaps the only country in the world where India has, uh, where India can replenish and refuel its naval and air assets in the port city of Dukum and um, the Indian Air Chief uh, Badoria was uh, in Oman not too long ago for exercises with the Oman Air Force. Uh, the Oman Navy ha has a strong relation, the Royal Oman Navy has strong relations with India. They have an intelligence sharing agreement as well. Dukum port is actually uh, an installation where India has established the Middle East component of its uh, uh, maritime surveillance and reconnaissance for uh, listening in on to vessel uh, communications in the region and this is uh, these are some of the excerpts which I read uh, in uh, Indigo publications of France um, a few years ago and Dukum is a hotspot uh, Oman is a wonderful country from where you can uh, not just access the key power players of the GCC by road but also uh, from the maritime angle it provides ample opportunities for uh, competitors to uh, flex their muscles uh, around the, uh, the Gulf of Aden and uh, then also um, um, Sultan Qaboos was responsible for modernizing Oman as we see it today uh, it retains its independence and non-alignment. 
it has never ventured beyond borders it has always um, uh, stood its ground when it needed to it did not participate like pakistan in the war imposed against uh, yemen under the pretext of countering houthis and um, it has remained neutral when it came to boycotting qatar from the gcc and uh, when uh, the external forces they invaded syria uh, then oman did not close down its embassy in damascus it continued to operate and without any hindrance because they wanted to keep that channel open and that channel has been used by various uh, gcc uh, adventurists time and again to try to reach negotiated settlements with the assad regime now and then so this is where oman's power is shown and it is expected to uh, the new leader the successor of sultan qaboos uh, uh, hasam bin tariq is expected to carry forward the legacy he was close to his cousin he was fiercely loyal uh, when sultan qaboos was alive hasam bin tariq al said he was served as the minister of heritage and culture uh, he the uh, profile in the economist described him as uh, outward looking and western oriented uh he is concurrently uh, he was and still is concurrently chairman of the committee for vision oman 2040 2040 it is a road map i've read the document it makes for a very interesting reading similar to saudi arabia's ambitious neom project the vision 2030 so oman 2040 aims to implement a broad set of regulatory and bureaucratic reforms to transform the economy and they aim to do that if you go through the documents they aim to achieve those objectives through uh gains based uh, relationships with the uh, economic partners in the region uh and uh, provide a free market economy for and com- competition space for investors and obviously uh the indian diaspora in oman is known to be very influential uh, as much as they have already outranked pakistan's diaspora in the uae and oman is a place where india's diaspora is is known to invest heavily it could provide ample opportunities for indian and money leadership to uh, capitalize on that for their gains i was recently reading this very interesting column in the telegraph india newspaper authored by mr anil wada uh, he is a former ambassador of india to oman he wrote a piece commemorating and paying tributes to sultan qaboos he highlighted that uh, hasan bin tariq is i quote well known to india unquote and he expected him he expects him to carry forward the legacy of uh, sultan qaboos uh and what that legacy is according to anil wada it was the persistent ambition of sultan qaboos to build upon defense trade investment and intelligence cooperation with india and it is no fact that uh, if um, just uh, a few hours after his the announcement of his death not just not even hours a few minutes after the announcement of his death uh, indian prime minister narendra modi expressed india's desire to i quote work hand in hand unquote with oman to further strengthen mutual strategic partnership now obviously that partnership is not just on the economic angle but also as i mentioned the air and naval facilities which uh, iran uh, which uh, india can enjoy in oman in my previous podcast i mentioned 
that India, Iran and Oman are working on a trilateral framework to improve their security standing in the region and uh, this is where uh, India can provide further space for Iran and Oman to continue their relations and sustain pressure from the US etc to sanction Iran. So this is something which uh, Pakistan needs to watch out for and uh, if Mr. Anil Wada very confidently asserts that uh, Hassan Mintarik is well known to India, uh, this uh, connotes a lot of things. Coming to this other segment, uh, the new naval base inaugurated in Egypt. On 15th January, so that's just yesterday, in the company of Abu Dhabi's powerful Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ and other Arab state and foreign ministers, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi inaugurated a large strategic naval base on the Red Sea. It's called Berenice, B-E-R-E-N-I-C-E, Berenice. Uh, in the olden times, it was known as uh, Mina Baranis. Uh, the base covers approximately 150,000 acres and is located southeast of Aswan. It has a naval port, an air base, a military hospital, training fields, and a number of administrative and combat units. It is near to the Ras Banas air base, which has been existent since long, uh, 50s or 60s. Um, both took almost a year and a half to be revamped. So uh, Ras Banas Air Base and Naval Base Berenice in the Red Sea, uh, directly opposite Saudi Arabia, a very important location. We are talking about um, at the crossroads between the Mediterranean Sea to the north and the Arabian Sea to the east. So this is where the Red Sea uh, assumes its uh, uh, importance and Egypt is currently has uncontested presence in the Red Sea as far as far as the uh, military posturing is concerned I came across this interesting declassified report on both these air and naval bases it is dated the 13th of June 1966 it was prepared by the CIA's erstwhile National Photographic Interpretation Center it mentions that Ras Banas was and still is the only major airfield in the Red Sea. Um, the still is part of, was checked out by me because still apart from Ras Banas there is no major airfield in the Red Sea. There isn't. So this hasn't changed uh, after um, 50 plus years. Uh, so the CIA mentioned that Ras Banas was the only major airfield and Port Berenice. So they wrote Mina Banaris, Baranis complements Ras Banas and inland talc mines. And um, this was um, this report by the CIA in 1966. It mentioned how the Ras Banas Air Base and Mira Baranis or the Port Berenice Air Base, uh, Naval Base would have uh, boosted Egypt's military prowess. Now what happened is that although there was a port in uh, Berenice, uh, there were significant uh, hindrances created by the US to allow the Egyptian military to properly set up its uh, naval infrastructure 
and a proper functioning uh, naval base but now Egypt has done that and uh, I was read this interesting piece in uh, the Middle East Monitor uh, it quoted Egyptian military affairs analyst Mahmoud Jamal he said that apart from security of the sud Egypt's southern borders with Sudan the Berenice base which could serve as a bulwark to counter anti-Iran operations there are reasons to believe the base could also be used to keep tabs on perceived and this um, I personally fail to understand why Egypt would use that for anti-Iran operations uh, now there is some context because uh, Iran after Soleimani's assassination had uh, been uh, keeping an eye on Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait suspecting either of these four countries of providing military logistics facilities for aircraft to carry out uh, uh, aircraft and drones to carry out the attack on Soleimani but mostly the suspicion fell on Kuwait and the Qatari leadership recently had uh, rushed to Iran to assure them that they didn't allow uh, the US to, do, to use their soil for such operations the US has their Aladeh air base over there and uh, the central command is based in Qatar but uh, absent but uh, Egypt could provide uh, a distant but not too distant place uh, in North Africa from where the US could uh, use aviation assets against Iran if need be but that again depends on whether Egypt wants to and whether it can afford uh, allowing its soil to be used that way uh, I personally believe that the ways could be used to keep tabs on uh, Turkish uh, perceived Turkish regional incursions we in my previous podcast and I highlighted that uh, Egypt also has severe problems uh, they have actually been making fun of the Turks accusing them of being these uh, wild crazy Ottomans trying to um, mess or and interfere unnecessarily in Libya they're pissed off with uh, Turkey's growing ambitions in the eastern Mediterranean and this is something which uh, these Egyptian concerns resonate interestingly with Israel uh, Greece and Cyprus and uh, I think that more than Iran it's going to be this base would allow to keep tabs on Turkey's uh, growing Mavi Vatan doctrine which uh, wants to uh, link together uh, the eastern Mediterranean arc of Turkey to uh, their joint military command with Qatar in the Arabian Sea and in between we have the Red Sea and that is where Egypt has its air and naval bases which could uh, prevent that from happening or try to narrow down its uh, implications as and when required so in that context I don't really uh, consider it to be intended for anti-Iran operations it could mostly be to try to provide support for maybe in the future Emirati troops and some other countries trying to launch attacks in support of Haftar in uh, Libya uh, I could one could certainly expect that um, and but anyways uh, Turkey will definitely be uh, taking great note of this development um, 
If you remember just recently, I don't know if you've read the news, Turkey's Foreign Minister Mavlut Çavuşoğlu, I hope I've not um, mispronounced the name too much, hinted that um, the Turkish leadership could prohibit the US from using its two strategic air bases at Incirlik and Kuricic if subjected to sanctions. Now, if uh, uh, being a, a ally of a member of NATO, if uh, Turkey uh, prevents the U.S. from using its air bases, then uh, the only other option they have is uh, Israel. They won't do that. So, if Egypt allows that, their them allows um, U.S. forces to use their bases, then that could uh, totally change the security dynamics in um, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, to Egypt's advantage, but then again, um, it would pose concerns for Saudi Arabia's own NEOM project, uh, which is also uh, facing the Red Sea. And um, the last thing one wants is to, for that zone to become another area of contestation. Um, but this is uh, where these things are headed. And in similar vein, uh, before I conclude the podcast, I come to my last segment. Uh, Israel's military intelligence recently included Turkey as a threat. So more specifically, the military intelligence directorate of Israel, it prepares annual assessments for Israel's leadership and parliament, the Knesset, etc. Uh, nothing new, routine work done in most countries. Uh, but what's different is that uh, although Israel and Tur Turkey enjoy close diplomatic relations and they have a functional relationship, they included Turkish President Rajab Tayyab Erdogan specifically, his Erdogan's policies as, I quote, challenges, unquote, in their annual assessment for 2020. Uh, the Israel Defense Forces, they don't foresee direct military confrontation with Turkey according to these assessments and suggest that uh, the ongoing issues w might not necessarily outlive Erdogan. So they expect that all these current issues and reservations they have with Turkey as a state are because of uh, Erdogan as an individual, his policies, his, his uh, perspectives on how to uh, allegedly expand Turkey's influence in the region. Uh, Israel's MI is concerned about Turkish expansionist ambitions in Syria and energy deals with Libya. So the two specific countries um, with which Israel has problems of uh, increased Turkish cooperation are Syria and Libya. Not cooperation, but obviously when it comes to Syria, Turkey launched its uh, unilateral incursion and trying to, in the pretext of trying to eliminate uh, what they call our militant Kurds and uh, the YPG and uh, energy deals with Libya. Um, it's interesting that these concerns on Libya specifically are exactly what is bothering the UAE, Egypt, uh, Bahrain, uh, Israel, obviously, and Greece and Cyprus. So in the Mediterranean region, uh, well, Turkey is uh, all alone. And it just made um, things more difficult for itself because the last thing which Turkey's intelligence needs right now and its state leadership is to uh, cause uh, panic within Israeli circles. The elections of for uh, the elections for uh, the seat of uh, prime minister, uh, the new cabinet is to be. The elections took place recently. Benny Gantz was uh, 
expected to win. I personally was uh, betting on Gantz on account of his profile and his personality and the trends emerging from his party. But um, it has just surfaced that um, they became controversial. Netanyahu has his own corruption issues and um, Erdogan has been in power for so long. There is a possibility that uh, the new, uh, the fresh elections which, be, which are expected to be held in March 2020, they would bring about a more, uh, they would they would bring about a less uh, aggressive leadership on the Israeli front. Uh, if Gantz wins, then obviously uh, Gantz would tone down the rhetoric uh, against regional countries as imposed by Netanyahu at the moment. Very. Uh, pro-war ambitions, um, he had conservative ambitions. But uh, these assessments, whoever wins the upcoming Israeli elections is going to have to take complete stock of this assessment and whoever becomes the Prime Minister of Israel in the coming few months, uh, he will have to uh, devise policies and keeps uh, tabs on Ar president, Turkish President Erdogan's policies. Now, what would that involve remains to be seen. If uh, Netanyahu continue, continues or if the conservative parties in Israel, like the Likud, they sweep the elections again, then um, we can expect further unrest in the region, but there are chances of these assessments being more pragmatically assessed by an experienced person in the form of Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff of the IDF himself. And um, how would that board for Turkey's uh, existing ties with Israel? Well, um, already they have their concerns over Turkish uh, growing ambitions in the Mediterranean. And so this was, wasn't was uh, unexpected, but this does come as a surprise for many who weren't, um, because they've singled out Erdogan. It's interesting that uh, they haven't uh, directly uh, taken uh, the whole uh, Turkish state uh, perspective into view, but singled out Erdogan as whose policies they consider a challenge. So it's they focus themselves one state and its institution against one individual. And this same rhetoric is uh, echoed and repeated by Sisi of Egypt and the Saudi and UAE leadership. So we in Pakistan, we have our own uh, long-standing uh, brotherly relations with Turkey. And uh, as far as Israel is concerned, um, Pakistan is only concerned about Turkish interests in uh, northern Cyprus, in the Mediterranean at large. And uh, it remains to be seen how long uh, President Erdogan continues to wield his policies and how effectively they are implemented by those who are supposed to implement them. So this wraps up. Uh, episode 5 of the Pakistan Geostrategic Review. Uh, thank you very much for your messages. I have received a few uh, messages from some of my listeners uh, now and then. It's quite encouraging. 
uh, as you know this is a non-profit and non-commercial initiative I really appreciate the time that you take your time to listen to my commentary and I honestly appreciate any sort of uh, positive or negative criticism you throw my way you're most welcome uh, thank you for listening uh, Allah Hafiz